Yes, indeed. A great, big, heaping portion of Americana served up by our all-boy band. Thank you. And it was uh, a song written by Kathleen Edwards, familiar to some of you. And as we continue our week, um, as we continue our series on expiration date, that song is a great lead-in to where we're going today. Some haunting lines to that song. Life can be cruel. Life can be sweet if I want it to be. Yet, when we're coming to this topic today of debt, for some of you, that line is very haunting. Everybody out here, they want to live somewhere else. For those of you who have experienced the burden of debt and the feeling trapped under debt, sometimes, like that song expresses, you kind of just wish you could press the reset button and just go somewhere else and start over because it can feel so weighty. And you're captivated by that thought that life can be sweet. But maybe for some of you, life feels awfully cruel right now. There are two ways to live when it comes to this idea of debt. One, we can live free. Two, we can be enslaved. And when it comes to this issue of expiration date and living, urgency, and living with a sense of urgency, for some of you, the, thing, the, the most immediate way that debt feels enslaving is in the issue of financial debt. There's a very familiar proverb to many of you in this room found in Proverbs 22.7, which says this, just as the rituals over the poor, so the borrower is a servant or a slave to the lender. The more literal translations say slave. And that's intentional. Because for the, any, of the, any of you who have lived under the burden of debt, you know how enslaving debt can be. And the Bible is very clear that we can be enslaved or we can be free. And we're going to look today at how to pursue freedom when it comes to this issue of debt. A couple points of clarification, though, and questions as we dive in. First of all, you know, how urgent is debt, financial debt? Uh, some of you are familiar with the concept of the debt snowball, which is actually a very good thing when it's a systematic tool that you can use to actually attack financial debt. Debt snowball can be a good thing. But for some of you, uh, the idea of a snowball with debt can be very, very ominous. And if you remember the Looney Tunes cartoons of, the, of that tiny little snowball that starts at the top of the mountain, the perfectly shaped circle snowball... And, you know, at first, debt doesn't seem like it's urgent because it's just like that little tiny snowball. You can buy the 96-inch flat-screen plasma high-def whatever, the wall-mounted and everything on your credit card, and you can, you can pay with money that you don't have, and you don't necessarily feel the immediacy of that purchase. But like that little teeny tiny snowball that starts up at the top of the mountain and it rolls down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, at some point, it catches up to you, doesn't it? And so the urgency of debt when it comes to financial debt can often feel like latent or delayed urgency as that snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a good snowball and there's a bad snowball. The debt snowball is the good snowball, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But for some of you, you're feeling like you're trapped under the weight of that snowball that's been running, rolling down the hill. And now things are catching up to you. Another question, though. If we talk about financial debt... 
Some of you might be right to ask, especially if you're new to the church, some of you might be right to ask, okay, if you're going to talk about financial debt, why would I listen to you? I mean, this is a church, right? What does the church have to say about financial debt? I mean, and if you're asking that question, frankly, I don't blame you because Clark Howard is far more bubbly than I'll ever be. Susie Orman's teeth are a lot whiter than mine will ever be. And Dave Ramsey has the experience of having actually gone through bankruptcy and having emerged from that. So why would you come to me and hear on Sunday about tips and techniques about how to get out of debt? Well, two things. We're not going to just merely go to tips and techniques today. We're not just going to talk about financial debt. But some of you may be interested to know that when it comes to the issue of, of, our, of our stuff, how we relate to money and possessions, that the Bible actually has an awful lot to say about that. A number of years ago, a man named Howard Dayton, who would eventually go on to found the Crown Financial Ministries, got together with a, with a couple of his friends, and they had a Bible study. And the purpose of, of the Bible study was they were going to look through the entire Bible and find every passage in the Bible, every scripture passage in the Bible, that dealt with money and possessions. And I don't know what they were gunning for. Maybe they thought they'd find a, a hundred or so, maybe. After looking through the entire Bible, they cataloged 2,350 Bible verses that talked about how we relate to money and possessions. 2,350. And you can go to the Crown Financial website and download that PDF that lists all those scripture verses. But moreover, he honed in to the very teaching of Jesus. And Howard Dayton found that 15%, one five, 15% of what Jesus talked about was how we interact with money and possessions. And the theme, the predominant theme throughout the Bible when it comes to money and possessions is this very distinct idea that you and I actually don't have any money. It's not ours. The car that we drive, the home that we live in, the clothes on our body, they don't belong to us. They're simply entrusted to us by God. And the theme that the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament uses is that you and I are stewards of the resources that God has given and that's what the Bible is most, most interested in talking about. Not just how do we get out of financial debt, important as that, as that may be, but how do you and I live free in relation to the stuff that God has entrusted to us as stewards? So if it's just a financial seminar, yeah, don't go to church. But there is a profound intersection between finances and our relationship with God. And Andy Stanley put this best. He said in a, in a talk series that he did at his church in, in Atlanta, he said, if we are out of balance financially, we are going to be out of balance in our relationship with God. If we're out of balance financially, we're going to be out of balance in our relationship with God. I think he's absolutely right. And what he was doing is, in essence, commenting on what Jesus himself said about finances. And Jesus said, if you've been reading through Project 345, you know, we're in the Gospel of Matthew right now. Fairly recently, Jesus in in chapter 6 said, you and I can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and we can't serve money at the same time because we're going to love the one and hate the other. There's a conflict that exists there because if we think that we can serve two masters, then we have to ask ourselves, when they do come into conflict, who has the tiebreaker? And it can't be done. We can't serve both God and money. And so the question is, who do we serve? And if we're going to be connecting with God... We have to have balance in our financial lives so that we have an appropriate connection with God. So here's another twist, though, before we dive into the Bible verse that we're going to look at today, or the passage. 
I want to acknowledge the fact that as a Christian pastor speaking at a Christian church in 21st century North America, that it is entirely possible if we simply hone in on financial debt, it is entirely possible for you to be financially free and be an atheist and be an agnostic. In fact, world religion or philosophy doesn't matter. There are timeless, enduring financial principles that span empires, that span religion, that span philosophers. You can be an ancient Babylonian, an ancient Egyptian. You can be a Mormon today, a, a, a Muslim, a Buddhist. It doesn't matter. If you follow some basic financial principles, it's really not rocket science. If you spend less than you earn, if you save your money, if you diversify your investments, and if you avoid debt, these are timeless financial principles that have existed for millennia. And like the popular title of the book goes, you can in fact be the millionaire next door, be totally financially free. But what God would say is, that doesn't necessarily mean you're free on the inside. And that's what we're going to look at today, is how can we be both free internally and free in regards to how we treat the stuff that we've been entrusted. Now, as a way of preparation uh, for the, the talk itself, I came across this quote from a very famous book by Dallas Willard that some of you have read. Dallas Willard is a very smart professor from University of Southern California. He wrote a very famous book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. He wrote this book many years ago. And so keep that in mind. He wasn't writing this as a response to what our country has just gone through in the last couple of weeks. But it's insightful, I think, to hear this in regards to where we as a nation have been the last couple of weeks. I mean, we've been through one of the most embarrassing chapters of our national history as we've had to deal nationally with this issue of debt and raising a debt ceiling. And Dallas Willard says this, and I think it's an appropriate context setter for where we're going to go. Willard says, Multitudes are now turning to Christ in all parts of the world. How unbearably tragic it would be, though, if the millions of Asia, South America, and Africa were led to believe that the best we can hope for from the way of Christ is the level of Christianity visible in Europe and America today, a level that has left us tottering on the edge of world destruction. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. And I would agree wholeheartedly with him, which is our challenge for today, is not to pitch a message too low, but to see what God actually has to say about freedom internally and freedom as it pertains to our finances. We're going to look at a passage of the, of the Bible, again, from Project 345 very recently. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 8, you can do so. If you want to pull it up on your handheld, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. I will tell you at the front end, this is not a passage of Scripture that will be one of the 2,350 verses that Crown Financial Ministries has cataloged. So it may seem a little odd and maybe out of place because on the surface it has nothing to do with debt. But in all actuality, it has everything to do with debt. And we're going to dive in together and look at that today. By way of introduction... This story takes place, and there's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, but this takes place in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew was a Jew. He was a tax collector, interestingly enough. He also goes by the name Levi. Matthew wrote this biographical account of Jesus' life as an apologetic, especially to first century 
converts to Christianity, people who had been Jewish and converted to Christianity. As you read throughout Matthew, and perhaps some of you have noticed that as you've gone through Project 345, that there are lots of quote, uh, a lot of quotes and references to the Old Testament. Because one of the things that Matthew was doing is he was telling his readers, and even us today, that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies from years and years ago. Jesus himself was Jewish. And what we at Warehouse 242 believe about Jesus is that he is the Christ. He is the long-promised Messiah who came about to to bring about freedom and, and the salvation of the world. So with that background, here you have Matthew, a Jew, writing to a decidedly Jewish audience in what is, for them and even us today, a very scandalous story. And it's the story about the faith of a Roman centurion. And it goes like this. Jesus had entered Capernaum, and there was a centurion who came to him, a Roman soldier. And he came asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under, the, under my roof. Now let's pause just for a second here. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a, a rabbi. He's a teacher. And in offering to go to the house of a non-Jew, a Gentile, that would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. We know from the Luke passage that this, that this centurion was sympathetic to the Jews. And so he puts the pause button on. But listen to how the story continues. Jesus, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. He's a centurion. Centurion, century, basic, uh, same root word. That means that this soldier had a hundred men under his command. Go and he goes, this one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, the Jews around him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such a great faith. I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. There's some pretty dramatic stuff in this passage. And we could spend a lot of time diving into the implications of this passage, but I want to look at two profound implications that the original listers had to confront and that we have to confront. First of all, the centurion confessed how unworthy he was to even have Jesus in his home. At the same time, he expressed a desperate need for Jesus because he knew that Jesus had authority. Now, That by itself is scandalous to us today. Because Jesus is saying, in a very real way, the starting point for real and authentic faith is to for you and I to confess that we are unworthy. Now, unless you've seen Wayne's World, that's an abstract concept. And there used to be a time in America when people who believed in Jesus and would talk to to people who didn't believe in Jesus, there was a time when people would actually begin spiritual conversations like this. You know, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. 
And there were a number of years in this country where people would say, really, God loves me? Has a plan for my life? That was, that was earth-shattering news for many, many years. But about 20 or 30 years ago, the tide started to change. And now if you say to many of us, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, a lot of us respond, well, of course. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm a lovable guy. I'm worthy of that. I mean, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> and we blend this self-actualization movement that's happened in the country along with New Age philosophy and with this persistent cultural narcissism that says, of course God should love us. Why wouldn't he? He'd be foolish not to. As a matter of fact, God owes me because I'm living my life in such a manner that I actually should be blessed. And to, the, and to that cultural reality, Jesus is saying what's, what makes this centurion's faith stand out for starters is this centurion recognized how unworthy he was. And Jesus is saying that's actually a starting point for you and I to recognize our own brokenness and our own desperate need for Jesus. Secondly, the centurion, and I'm about to swear, so please forgive me, the centurion submitted to Jesus' authority. I'm sorry for saying that. Uh, please, you know, shelter your children's ear. Yes, the centurion submitted to Jesus' authority. Did he really say submitted in church? Yes. We're Americans. Submit? Really? We don't want to submit to anyone. We don't want to submit to anything. That's totally un-American. But yet Jesus is saying the outstanding, remarkable, simple, true faith of this centurion rested in someone's willingness to submit to Jesus' own authority. And make no mistake about it, that is scandalous and rather irritating to many of us in this room. And that idea of submitting to God, really? Can't God just love me? There are some of you who are returning to church. Maybe some of you are coming to church for the first time. And what Jesus is provoking you with in this passage is that there is freedom that Jesus wants to give you. If you recognize a desperate need for him and a willingness to submit to him and trust his authority for your life. And there are those of you who in this room who have been followers of Jesus for many, many years and who come to this passage and what you and I will be confronted with is we may submit to some aspects of Jesus' authority, but do we give Jesus permission? Do we give Jesus authority over all aspects of our life? One of the most profound spiritual thinkers from a Christian standpoint of the last 100 years is, was John Stott. He passed away recently. No exaggeration to say that Warehouse 242 exists because of pioneers like John Stott and the way that they engage with being a missional church. Uh, decades ago, John Stott was talking about what it means to be a missional church, and we are here because of his legacy. He passed away recently. And in one of his last books called The Radical Disciple, John Stott says this, our common way of avoiding radical discipleship is to be selective, choosing those areas in which commitment suits us and staying away from those areas in which it will be costly. But because Jesus is Lord, we have no right to pick and choose the areas in which we will submit to his authority. 
Let me read that again. But because Jesus is Lord, we have no right to pick and choose the areas in which we will submit to his authority. Have you and I submitted all our lives to the authority of Jesus? Trusting that he'll actually produce in our hearts freedom? Last couple years, we've offered Financial Peace University here at Warehouse 242. Last year, we had it in this arena. Right now, it's going on Wednesday nights upstairs. And Financial Peace University is Dave Ramsey's curriculum that talks about financial matters. And here's a story from someone who's gone through the Financial Peace University journey. This is where they are right now. Little did I know how much my debt and money issues were holding me down like a heavy burden until I took Financial Peace University course about a year ago. Little did I realize that I had a very twisted and warped relationship with my finances until I had to deconstruct my monthly income and expenses, create a budget, and follow it. The hardest part was realizing how I was not letting God into this part of my life. Facing up to my personal financial shortcomings was one of the most painful and shaming experiences I've gone through. Feelings of guilt when I think of all the times I spent when I didn't have the money or when I did have the money, the things for which I spent it, all point to behaviors of immediate gratification and an apparent lack of trust and faith in God. I deserve that trip to the wine country. I deserve that pair of shoes were the scripts running through my head. Looking for happiness and acceptance at Target, Bistro Laban, or in a new car, it's what I was doing and I didn't even realize it. And all I ended up with was a lot of debt and a heavy burden that created a wedge between me and my relationship with God. Not only has Financial Peace University helped me rebuild my relationship with God, but it also has helped me experience the bliss of delayed gratification. When I say no to the impulses of sale purchases, to the urge to eat out rather than cook yet another meal, and the lure of a very low APR on a brand new vehicle, there's an immediate satisfaction that takes over those desires. A sense of relief, pride, and trust that I will be fine without them. The space that I was filling with stuff can now be open to letting God into my life and feeling a deeper sense of satisfaction more than anything money can buy. To free myself from this financial squalor, I started by buying a used car and paying cash. I had only $5,000, and let me tell you, there are very slim pickings for a car of any kind of virtue for $5,000. Most of what I found was cars from the late 80s and early 90s that didn't look safe to be on the road. All I could do was pray, and it felt odd to pray for a car, but I knew I had to let God into this part of my life too. After some more praying and more searching, I finally found a car that had a decent mileage, only minor dents and dings, and definitely seemed safe for highway travel. They wanted $6,500 for it. I offered $5,000 and played my I'm a single mom card, and they agreed. I couldn't believe it. It worked. God answered my prayers. For the first time in my life, I paid cash for a car. No loan, no interest, no vanity. Lots of satisfaction that I'm headed down the road God intends for me, one of financial freedom. Being a single parent has many challenges. One of the challenges is that I don't have anyone to be accountable or to help me on the course. It's just me and God. It's been a year since I took the Financial Peace University class, and I felt like I needed some help. I was starting to lose the Dave Ramsey fever. 
So I turned to the church. And one of the facilitators from the first course was able to meet with me and review my plan and help me tweak my budget and come up with some new goals. It was a great way to recharge my batteries and get me back on track. It's good to know I have the Warehouse 242 community behind me on this journey. And I hope no one ever feels they have to tackle their finances on their own. It's a year later, and I still struggle with the lure of all the stuff that promises to make life better. Daily, I struggle. It's just, I just have to keep first things first and remember that God has a plan for me that is greater than that curiously intoxicating smell of a new car or having that fabulous handbag. If I do my part and stick with my debt snowball initiative, follow the advice of Financial Peace University on what I give, save, and spend, then I must trust God to carry me through the rest. He has plans for me. I must be patient and firm in my commitment to trust his plans. And she closes with this familiar Bible verse from Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you hope and a future. She said it better than I could. A story of someone who's learning to be free by learning to submit to Jesus' authority in all areas of her life. Even when it's convenient. Even when it's uncomfortable. And the result is a greater sense of freedom. So as we conclude, again, that text perhaps out of place, but maybe not. Because it's a, not at all a text about debt, but maybe it is. Because there's financial debt, but then there's debt that's more than money. And we have to ask ourselves, do we realize that we can be financially free and yet still very much in debt? This is the message of Christianity here. And the lead-in is a quote familiar to many of you from a song from a long time ago by the Eurythmics called Missionary Man. And the song starts, I was born an original sinner. I was born from original sin. And if I had a dollar bill for all the things I'd done, there'd be a mountain of money piled up to my chin. You know, cue harmonica now, right? That's it. You and I, regardless of where we are financially, you and I have amassed a mountain of moral debt that we can't pay off. Dave Ramsey can't even help us with that one. And the message of Christianity is cheer up, you're far worse off than you ever imagined. Because that mountain of moral debt isn't just your chin, we're drowning in it. Our active rebellion from God has amassed a mountain of moral debt that is staggering. But the good news of Christianity is that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. And that's why God the Father sent Jesus, who lived a life that we couldn't live, who lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and selfishness, paid the ultimate price by dying on a cross, and paid off our moral debt to any who would receive him. He gives the right to be his children. And that's the invitation that Jesus offers each and every one of us today, regardless of where we are on our own spiritual journey. Life can be sweet, as Kathleen Edwards said, if we want it to be. Debt 
whether it's financial, whether it's moral, makes us slaves. Jesus came to set us free. And when you and I submit to Jesus' authority, he will make us free. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you in prayer this morning, and you rightly astound us and confuse us. Because just when we think we have you figured out, you challenge our preconceptions and our notions about who you are. And on behalf of everyone here, I want to confess how hard it is to recognize how much we need help. I recognize how hard it is sometimes to feel desperate. And I recognize how hard it is to even imagine what it would mean like to submit our entire lives to you. Uh, That's a word that we just, just makes us squirm. And yet here you are saying that if we have that faith, like a Roman centurion who trusts in your authority and submits to your authority, that you will bring about freedom. And that's astounding faith. So show us how we can have that faith so that our lives can be free. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, it may seem odd, perhaps, to take an offering after a talk like that, but we do it as a way of response, as a responding to the outrageous, initiating love of God. Again, none of what we have in our pockets or in our account, none of it belongs to us. It's all God's. So he invites us to be generous in return and not ask how little do we give, but how much can we give as a response to his outrageous love. So as you give and as you listen to this tune, which is a a flashback from the past from Warehouse, an oldie but a goodie, engage in this time and celebrate the gift of freedom that Jesus offers.